This week on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. We need people to think with their hearts. We need them to see that their soul is connected to every other living creature on this planet. And we need to apply the science to come up with the solutions. I'm Neil Harvey. This week, it's a spiritual response to the ecological crisis on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Religion is the oldest, most compelling moral framework for social action. Faith makes people do all kinds of things they had not planned to do before, right? And it brings us joy to do those things. And that's exactly what we need. If there is anyone that can wake people up, it's the religious community. Spirituality is the highest form of political consciousness. That provocative statement was made by John Mohawk, an Iroquois scholar and elder. It distills the view of many indigenous, traditional, and religious cultures around the world. In this worldview, some cultures are addressing what they call creation, the creator of life, or the great mystery. It's as infinite and mysterious as the cosmos itself, something deeply sacred. It describes a relationship of spirit to spirit arising at the ineffable source of intelligence or wisdom that's the process of life on Earth, the creation of planets, stars, and galaxies. It's not only the human who has this consciousness. It's the essence of humankind in communion with the essence of all life. As John Mohawk put it, quote, acquire that consciousness and it becomes extremely difficult to rationalize pollution or cut down trees to make bored feet of dollars out of them. But we have ceased to have a spiritual consciousness, and they've become commodities, and we've become consumers. And that's the essence of the problem in the world." Unquote. As director of the World Wildlife Fund's Sacred Earth Program, Dakila Shungyalpa is showing how religion and spiritual consciousness are emerging today as powerful forces to restore the earth, our relationship with nature and each other, and the sacred. This is Is Nothing Sacred? A Spiritual Response to the Ecological Crisis with Dakila Shungyalpa. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. I began to call myself an environmentalist and a Buddhist at the same time and for the same reason. I grew up in Sikkim in the Himalayas, and at the age of 15, I moved to New York City. It was quite a shock. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I found myself just longing for wilderness. There was no green to see anywhere in New York, and also longing for the sight of venerable monks in red robes. It's I think basically in a thunderclap of homesickness, I declared myself as a Buddhist and an environmentalist. Dakila Chungyalpa engages with faith leaders and institutions in Asia and across the globe to address environmental decline and restore communities. Prior to creating the Sacred Earth Program, she designed and managed community-based conservation programs in the eastern Himalayas and led the World Wildlife Fund's efforts in Asia's Mekong region, on large-scale strategies for addressing climate change and hydropower. Dakila Shungyalpa spoke at a Bioneers conference. 
His Holiness the Karmapa, who's the head of the Kagyu lineage for Tibetan Buddhism, he's also the head of my lineage, gave a teaching on compassion to animals. And the basis of the teaching that he gave was actually the refuge prayer. And Buddhists usually, when they become Buddhists or declare themselves as Buddhists, this is the prayer they learn. And we are taught this prayer by the time we're four. It's, it's the first prayer we learn. And the prayer basically says, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, which is the community, until I become enlightened. And then I will work to be enlightened so that I can alleviate suffering for all sentient beings. And we just rattle this prayer all the time. And what he talked about was, how is it possible that we say this prayer every day, but then we go on to eat meat? And by the end of the teaching, he said, how many people want to be vegetarians? And he asked this question. And a sea of hands, thousands of hands rose up, and one of those hands was mine, completely unexpected. I tried to be vegetarian for many years, and for all the right reasons, you know, climate change, deforestation, health, you name it, and always failed. And all of a sudden, my heart just rose up and said, I want to do this, and I, I've been vegetarian since. So what happened there? So it was this fascinating experience. My brain was analyzing it, even as my hand was up there, because what I did was something that was quite inconvenient, nothing I planned to do, you know, something that went against everything I enjoyed, and yet my faith compelled me to do it. And it was because of the call of my faith leader. And so I think that's the first time, firsthand, that I experienced the power of faith and how that could change behavior. And so the second thing that happened was His Holiness asked that I give him a presentation on the state of the environment in the Himalayas. And by the end of the conversation, he said he had a vision for Buddhism. And he said that he wanted all Buddhist monks and nuns in monastery to leave their meditation mat, to come outside to the community and work with the community to solve social and environmental ills. This is quite revolutionary in Buddhism. <laughs> And so I thought, okay, great, yeah, I can do that. I'll take two weeks annual leave, I'll come in, <laughs> I'll work with your monks and nuns, and you know, it'll be a nice short-term investment in my karma bank. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I will do it. Um, and so now, I thought it's a two-week thing. It's our fifth year now. We have 55 monasteries working on environmental projects. And just to give you a sample, they do everything from plantation of indigenous forests, indigenous trees and saplings, they install 22 monasteries have solar for heating. Um, they incorporate wildlife protection messages in their prayers and their rituals. These monasteries are in some of the most fragile and ecologically important landscapes. Their influence actually radiates into the community. They sway decision-making at the highest levels. As Reverend Fletcher Harper of Green Faith points out, religious traditions around the world comprise the largest social network on the planet. Over 80% of the world's people adhere to a specific faith. These traditions guide the way people act, think, and live our lives. With Tequila Shungyalpa's leadership, the World Wildlife Fund's Sacred Earth Program is channeling the influence of spiritual and religious leaders into addressing some of the world's most challenging environmental problems and places. One really sad issue that connects and bridges Africa and Asia is the wildlife issue of illegal wildlife trade. Um, most people think of poaching as something local people do to put food on the table, or, you know, to make ends meet. In reality, wildlife trade is the fifth most profitable illegal industry in the world. It follows exactly the same patterns as the trafficking of guns. 
and the trafficking of drugs. It's managed by international crime syndicates. And the relationship between wildlife trade and local militia in Africa and terrorist groups in Africa is extremely strong. Ivory is how they're making their money now, which is why ivory is now called blood ivory. In 2007, there were 13 rhinos that were poached in South Africa. Last year, there were 600 rhinos poached in South Africa. And so what we decided to do was a combination of encouraging religious leaders to step up and speak on this, but also asking for their prayers and asking for them to heal this pain that exists in local communities. So we brought over 35 religious leaders across Africa, from the Christian faith, the Hindu faith, from Islam, and from traditional African faiths. And these are all leaders that already work on sustainability issues. And so they came together and we did this prayer around the ivory burning memorial site in Nairobi National Park. And it was a really rich conversation, but actually what came out of it very tangibly was 50 religious leaders made commitments on behalf of their religious institutions that they will do something on wildlife crime. And what we've seen now is the Presbyterian churches of East Africa, they've created a whole liturgy on wildlife and how they are children of God. Um, the Catholic Church has run programs in every diocese in Kenya training their Catholic clergy on wildlife crime and how to stop it in their communities. So it's quite powerful. Of course, it's not enough just to work in the supply side, so simultaneously we've been working in Thailand. Now, most of the ivory goes to China, and it goes through Thailand because Thailand has a legal domestic market for ivory. And so it's become this sinkhole and sort of a laundering machine for ivory to go through. And so we went to all the Buddhist leaders that we could reach and said, is this a Buddhist issue? Could you care about this? And, and the response was so huge, it was just unanimous. Everybody responded saying, they wanted to do something. So what we did is, um, during CITES, which is the Convention of International Trade on Wildlife Products, we actually brought all these monks and nuns, many of them who've never met and who represent their traditions together, and we had a merit-making ceremony for elephants. Now, a merit-making ceremonies for Thais are done for their venerable elders. It's something you just do for your family members. And so what these monks and what this nun did was they elevated the statue of elephants in a very far-off continent and made them extremely personal and made the Thai people feel that they're responsible for the fate of the elephants. In July of 2013, 3.5 million Catholic youth came to Rio, Brazil to meet with the newly ordained environmentally conscious Pope Francis. Tequila Chungyalpa brought the World Wildlife Fund together with World Youth Day organizers and the Catholic Church. And one of the things we did was um, we appealed to the Pope and we worked with indigenous leaders, we worked with the churches um, to ask that the Pope address the issue of protecting the Amazon and see it as one sustainable living entity and apply the power of the church to protecting that. What was amazing was in a closed door meeting with the bishops, all the bishops from Latin America, the Pope actually did raise this issue. And he said that the bishops had to work and the Catholic Church had to work to protect the rights of indigenous peoples and their lands in the Amazon. And so this is what the bishops are working on right now. The power of faith communities to address climate change and protect nature can't be overstated. Faith-related institutions own about 8% of total habitable land surface. They constitute the world's third largest category of financial investors. 
There are about 300,000 houses of worship in the United States, and thousands of them are going green. Churches, synagogues, mosques, and Hindu and Buddhist temples. Top megachurch evangelical leaders are advocating action on climate change, a political sea change that's reflecting the gospel of creation care. As a Buddhist, Tequila Shingyalpa sees her role as working for the benefit of all beings. She has found that that also means alleviating the suffering so many people feel about the catastrophic harms our species is inflicting on the web of life. For the longest time, I was using my brain to explain why it was so heartbreaking that all of these terrible things were happening in the environment. And I was using all the facts and figures I could to explain to everybody that this was actually just, you know, would make me cry at night, would make all my colleagues feel like we should just give up or, you know, just not be here. And I've had so many of my colleagues say things like that, that, you know, I, I want to commit suicide or, you know, I'm so depressed or or I hate this world, I hate everybody. People are not very liked in my community, <laughs> you know? And so I got really used to this until I went back to my spiritual tradition. And I had to refine this hope and I had to regain a sense of trust that things are gonna be okay. Dekila Shungyalpa found that all spiritual and religious traditions have teachings that honor the sacredness of the earth. But what might her own Buddhist perspective offer to a wounded planet and despairing people? That story when we return. This is Is Nothing Sacred? A Spiritual Response to the Ecological Crisis. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. To explore all available Bioneers radio shows and video programming, please visit Bioneers.org. In Dekila Shungyalpa's Himalayan society, the word for I is very weak. It's very gentle. But we is very strong, indicating a primary self-identification with the wider community and the web of life. Dekila Shungyalpa. I'm an environmentalist because I'm a Buddhist and vice versa. And the reason why I said that is because probably the most basic, fundamental philosophy around Buddhism is that of interdependence. That we're actually, this idea of self that we have is um, our sense that it exists, you know, it, it, the self is simply contained in the body is just that we see that as nonsense, really. Because it, it lets look at who I am right now, you know. I'm here simply because I'm breathing. If I couldn't breathe, I wouldn't be here, I'd be dead. But where is this breath coming from, right? And, well, it's, it's oxygen, I'm taking it in. So where is the self? Is the self when the oxygen is entering my mouth? Is it when it's in my lungs? Is it when it is being expelled? You know, because if I'm so dependent on the oxygen, which is coming from trees, which is coming because there is soil and there is water, where does the sense of self actually begin and end? And so I was trained to 
really think about questions like this at a very young age by my mother and my grandmother. But now I look back and realize that it really made it easy for me to um, feel connected to everything, every living thing on this planet. One of the really interesting routes I've ended up in right now is I'm doing a lot of um, studying of eco-psychology. So a lot of young, you know, a lot of um, Rossack and other people like that. And I came across this term solastasia. I don't know how many of you know this. But this is basically the concept that actually our sense of self is much larger than the physical identity we think is us. And many of us, especially those of us who are driven to become environmentalists, that's because our sense of self is so big, it's so much larger than this body, that it incorporates whales, it sort of, it's, it takes over, you know, it's, it's as big as a biome, it can be as big as the river you love or live next to, it's the entire earth. And so when something happens to that, when something happens to your extended self, and you feel its pain and suffering, you take it extremely personally, and it hurts you. And so this is what we're suffering from. Solastasia is where we feel our pain. And I think we're moving to the point where we start saying, okay, we know. We now know what's wrong with us. You know? So we're going to move it forward. And we're going to make everybody else recognize that their sense of self is that big too. They've just sort of compartmentalized it and put it in an extremely small box, sort of saying, you know, I am the tribe of, I don't know, Gucci, I'm the tribe of Old Navy, <laughs> you know, and sort of we've put ourselves in these tribes and it's gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. But actually, if we can just say for a second, maybe through the practice of Tonglen, that we're one tribe, all of us on this earth, that's a big step forward. Dakila Shungyalpa found the Tonglen practice from Tibetan Buddhism to be very helpful in dealing with her own anger and grief over the destruction she's witnessed of rivers, forests, creatures, and communities. You close your eyes and you imagine this hated person in front of you, and then you breathe. And when you breathe, you're first of all breathing and thinking about everything that makes you happy, everything that gives you joy, the well-being of being alive right now, you know, the happiness and the joy, the well-being, the emotional health, the spiritual health, everything that gives you hope. And so you have all this energy, right? And you're very centered. And then you imagine this person that's in front of you, and you have to develop some equanimity and some compassion for this person. And what you see when you look at this person is how deeply this person is suffering. And so what you do is you take a breath, and you take in their suffering. And when you expel your breath, you give all your happiness to this person. So I was taught this by my mother when I was quite young. And um, I'm not sure when I began doing it for the earth. So I started doing it probably quite young for trees. There was a lot of landslides, and there was this road being constructed. And I remember being so agitated that the trees were all being cut down. And I remember doing this at that time. And then I, it just became a habit, and I've done it all my life, sort of, you know, I, in fact, imagine sinking into the ocean and sinking all the way in and then breathing with the earth. And it's so healing for me. I don't know if it helps the earth, but it helps me so much. And so um, a few years ago, I presented this as a question to His Holiness and said, I do this. Is this okay? Does it actually really help the whales? And does it actually really help the elephants that I breathe for them and I breathe them well-being, you know? And His Holiness said, you know, reality is what you make it, you know? And he said, whether you tangibly help them or intangibly help them, intention is the most important thing. And if you have the intention to do it, it will manifest. 
And so I offer this practice to everybody who's in the environment world. You don't have to be Buddhist, really. I hope this is useful. Dakila Chungyalpa is reaching out with this intention to the hundreds of millions of people who respond less to science and more to their faith tradition and faith leaders. But what keeps her up at night is the speed and scale that we need to change our way of seeing and living. She believes our greatest asset may be how adaptive we are. What occurred to me is that I've seen a lot of death, and life is extremely short. And I'd reached a point in my work, in my activism, and in my conservation work, where I thought I'd sort of scaled up the work as much as I could. And it occurred to me that the change isn't happening fast enough, and I felt a sense of real concern and uh, dejection. And when His Holiness, I feel like out of deep compassion for the earth, but also for me, you know, deep compassion gave me this task to say, let's energize the faith community. It really made me realize, wow, this is the right scale. You know, if there is anyone that can wake people up, it's the religious community. And faith leaders can energize people like nobody else. The religion is the oldest, most compelling moral framework for social action. Faith makes people do all kinds of things they had not planned to do before, right? And it brings us joy to do those things. And that's exactly what we need. I think the only way we can actually overcome where we are is by bringing a certain amount of joy to it. Because it's almost a sort of cliche to say this, but it really is about who throws the greatest party, you know? But it's really true because at the end of the day, we've spent so much time creating these divisions between people who care about the earth or people who are consumerists, right? Consumers versus environmentalists and, you know, hippies versus free market people. And like we've spent so much time dividing that. And we don't have time for these divisions. We don't have time for people to stay entrenched in these tribes, you know, of like, how do you vote? Oh, God, I don't care. <laughs> you know, do you care about life on earth? And do you want to do something to protect God's creation? That's good enough for me. <laughs> and so I think my hope with this program is really that it bridges these divides. You know, it, it really brings us down to what we hold sacred and dear to us. And if it turns out we have the same values, that's good. If it turns out that we actually have a vocabulary where we can understand one another, that's great. People have asked me, how is it possible that um, I have been able to work with religious leaders around the world, even though I'm a Buddhist from Sikkim, tiny place in the Himalayas, you know, I'm talking to evangelical leaders and the church and Islamic councils and so on. And the truth is, it's so easy. I've actually talked to them as a faith-based person. I haven't come in as a social scientist. I didn't come in, you know, talking about WWF and the Panda brand or anything. I just came to them and said, I'm a faith-based person. My faith compels me to try and save the world. We have something in common, which is we really believe in the sanctity of all life on earth. And no religious leader has said, this is irrelevant to my mission. <laughs> They've all actually just completely embraced this cause and said, okay, this is what we're waiting for. And, It's such a moment of hope for me because what I see is a convergence of faith leaders coming from all around the world. Maybe we're reclaiming the sacred feminine. Maybe it's they see themselves as the solutionists. It's quite an amazing movement. And so I think what WWF is doing with this program is really changing the dual nature of the discussions that we have about science versus religion and saying we actually need both. If we are going to talk about 
a living vision for the earth that goes on for millennia, then we need both. We need people to think with their hearts. We need them to see that their soul is connected to every other living creature on this planet. And we need to apply the science to come up with the solutions. So. <laughs> It's interesting to see that we're seeing more and more conservation organizations actually pick up faith-based partnerships. Just in the last year, many of them have started doing it. And so I think what we're also seeing is that the conservation movement sees the importance of engaging sacred values and, and going back to the roots of why we care about nature, which is we're all interconnected. And so I hope we can work together to bring this together and have a harmonious future. Thank you so much. <laughs> Akila Shingyalpa, restoring spirituality as the highest form of political consciousness, alleviating suffering by sanctifying our interdependence with nature and each other. Is Nothing Sacred, a spiritual response to the ecological crisis. You can hear more from Dekila Shungyalpa or explore more Bioneers radio shows and video programming online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Rykodisc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True, at soundstrue.com. For more music information, please visit radio.bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 1214. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley, pasture-raised organic dairy products bringing the good from our family to yours. Visit organicvalley.coop. Mary's Gone Crackers, healing the planet through conscious eating, Gluten-free and vegan products since 2004. Learn more at marysgonecrackers.com. John Masters Organics. Feel good about looking good. Visit johnmasters.com. Funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, 
dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues and by the generous support of listeners like you.